Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. Take two. If you got your Bibles, Psalm 139. Psalm 139. I always, I, we always have it up here, but I always want to encourage you, bring your Bible. Uh, there's, there's nothing like looking at it in the Bible that you read every day, so I encourage you to do that. And uh, we're going to look at a very important topic in our day. And you might be surprised kind of where I go with this topic a little bit. Um, so today uh, we're going to celebrate the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Uh, why? Why is it the third Sunday of January? Well, it's typically the third Sunday of January. Today we're celebrating on the fourth. But it's, it's typically the third Sunday of January because that falls closest to January 23rd. Does anybody know what happened on January 23rd, some 48 years ago, 49 years ago? Roe versus Wade, where Roe versus Wade was passed. And in uh, January 13, 1984, uh, President Reagan issued a proclamation designated January 22nd as the first National Sanctity of Human Life Day. And it was on that day in 73 that the U.S. Supreme Court legalized abortion on demand in all 50 states. And so today, churches continue to recognize the third Sunday or the Sunday closest to the 22nd or 23rd as Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And it's where we celebrate God's gift of life. It's where we com commemorate lives lost to abortion and where we commit to protecting human life at every stage. So today, I want to walk through Psalm 139. And I want to preach this word. I don't want to preach on a topic. You'll probably know that I like preaching sections of Scripture, opening the Word and seeing what it says, but I think the Word is crystal clear for us today. I want you to see something today, that today's sermon is not political in nature. It's very scriptural in nature. And so I want you to see that, that I'm not trying to delve into politics. I'm trying to delve into the Scripture. And in, in this point, politics snubs its nose at what the Scripture clearly states. So if I'm on the wrong side of politics, I'm okay with that. Today, I want you to open up your Bibles. I want to look at Psalm 139, and I want to look at three gloriously overwhelming, beautiful, magnificent, I can't find enough words, incredible, wonderful, amazing truths. And then I want to look at the psalmist's response to those truths. And, and hopefully we'll find ourselves in the scripture. And so I want to look at uh, the three gloriously amazing, wonderful, beautiful 
truths that we're going to uphold before you that I hope that today your heart will be more captivated by the love of God than ever before because this passage is fantastic. Okay, so Psalm 139, the first truth is that the all-knowing God knows me. The all-knowing God knows me. Listen to what it says. Oh Lord, verse 1, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up and how long it takes to do so. Some of you guys, never mind. You discern my thoughts from afar. Now, these truths are beautiful and terrifying simultaneously, aren't they? That God knows everything about us. He has searched us and known us. He knows when I sit down. He knows when I rise up. He discerned our thoughts. He searched out, verse 3, our path and my laying down. He's acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O oh Lord, you know it all together. See how it's beautiful and terrifying or terrifyingly beautiful? It's a scary truth, but a beautiful truth that God is omniscient. He knows everything. Not only does He know everything, He knows everything about you, He knows your ways. He knows the thoughts and intentions of your heart. If you look back at, uh, or all the way down to verse 23 and 24, he says, search me, O God, and know me. Well, is that because he hasn't searched him and he hasn't known him? No. He says he invites the Lord to do so. This is lordship. He invites the Lord, search me and know me. Test me, he says, and know my ways. See if there's any grievous way in me. God knows you intimately and loves you infinitely. Isn't that a beautiful idea? God, His knowledge for you is every facet and aspect of your life, and yet knowing every facet and aspect of your life, knowing every thought and intention of your heart, knowing every word before you speak it, He loves you nonetheless. Isn't that good news? The good news of the gospel is not that my good deeds make me lovable and my bad deeds make me unlovable, but by the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross, He knows me fully and loves me perfectly. How great and how glorious that the psalmist says, you know me and you love me. You, verse 5, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. That you know this about me, yet love me, is too wonderful for me. And I want you to know that the omniscient God of the universe knows you fully. And yet through Christ, loves you passionately. And if you don't hear anything else today, it doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what you did last night. It doesn't matter your words this morning on the way to church because I, I've been a part of some arguments on the way to church and then said, all right, y'all straighten up. Smile. We're going to church. Miss Wilma has had that conversation before, haven't you? And so, it doesn't matter my past. Doesn't matter the state of my heart. I want you to know that He knows your heart. 
And when he looks at your heart, he doesn't say, oh, bless his heart. He's got a good heart. He looks at your heart and he says, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, he says, man, that heart is wicked and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Yet, Jesus came to die for that heart. The omniscient, the all-knowing God knows me. Second, this glorious second truth that I want you to see is from verse 7 to verse 12. The ever-present God is with you, is with me. Look at what it says, verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? It reminds me of the song that we sing, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Where shall I go from your presence? Where shall I flee from your spirit? He answers, verse 8, If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. Now, time out. A lot of, a lot of us think sometimes that God is in heaven and God isn't in hell. And, and I want to I pose something to you this morning that I could find a lot of evidence for in the Scripture. I do not believe that hell is the absence of God because then God would not be omnipresent. I believe hell is the absence of God's mercy and grace. And where hell is, you are under the full wrath of God without any relief forever. He says, if I go to Sheol, I still can't get away from your judgment. I still can't get away from you in Sheol. I'm still under your wrath. I'm still experiencing the wrath of God even there. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I don't know where you are right now in your own spiritual walk, if you're right next to Jesus touching the hem of his robe, or if you're in the spiritual wilderness, but what it says in this passage is even there, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. It does not matter how alone that you feel in your relationship with Jesus. Jesus has not forsaken you. He has not left you. Why is that true? If you are in Christ, listen to me, church family, if you are in Christ, have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are never forsaken. Why? What is the evidence for that? Because Christ took your forsakenness on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God forsook Jesus on the cross so that he would never forsake you and I. Isn't that good news? What a glorious truth. I can't go anywhere to get away from him. And that is the most wonderful truth ever. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. So I want you to see the first truth, the all-knowing God knows me. Second truth, the ever-present God is with me. And the third truth, the almighty God created me. This is probably what we most famously know this passage for. Is verses 13 to verse 16 is what it says. For you formed my inward parts. The Hebrew there is you formed my kidneys. You formed my kidneys, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together 
in my mother's womb. You covered me. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. That word is not just to be made, but it's to be made and to be set apart. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. That intricately woven in this, this picture you have of formed and knitted together and intricately woven all speaks to this idea of when the tabernacle was being made in the wilderness, these words were used over and over and over Again, it's this idea of intricate needlework. Uh, some of you guys are needleworkers. You cross-stitch, you do all those kinds of things. Now, just uh, a few months ago in November, I was at the Cove uh, with one of the uh, boards that I serve on, and I was there for a board retreat. And in the Cove, on the second floor, in the main, main building? No, the, the upper building, maybe, I can't remember. There is a picture, it looks like a picture of Billy Graham. It's one of the most beautiful pictures from a distance, about 20 feet. It looks like an oil painting. But the closer you get to it, you find out that it's not an oil painting. It is a cross stitch. Am I using the right word there? Cross stitch? It's needlework. I took a picture of it. I don't do needlework. But let me tell you, that was the most intricately woven piece of art I've ever seen, but it does not hold a candle for what God did to you. His design of you and I, every created being, makes that pale in comparison. You're intricately woven in the depths of the earth. That word intricately woven can also be used as one who mixes colors. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet there was none of them. Before you ever took a breath. Before conception, God knew your days. He numbered them. He laid them out for you. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You were intricately designed inside your mother's womb and you were created on purpose for a purpose. God has laid out your days. And oh, that we would not waste them. The all-knowing God knows me. The ever-present God is with me. And the mighty God created me. Isn't that three beautiful truths? These truths cause the psalmist to worship. Look at verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of your thoughts for me? If I would count them, they're more than the sand. I'm awake and I'm still with you. The, it, these truths cause the psalmist to worship. Charles Spurgeon, I think we have this quote up on the screen. He says it this way. 
thoughts such as are natural to the Creator, the Preserver, the Redeemer, the Father, the Friend, are evermore flowing from the heart of the Lord. Thoughts of our pardon, renewal, upholding, supply, educating, perfecting, and a thousand more kinds perpetually well up in the mind of the Most High. You are never off of the mind of your God and Creator and Father, your Redeemer and friend. He is ever thinking about you. Do you feel the weight of that beauty? Are you awake out there this morning? The psalmist says it in Psalm chapter 8, something along these lines. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I think about the heavens and the work of your fingers, and the moon and the stars which you've set in place, who am I that you are mindful of me? Yet, the psalmist also says that if we could total up the thoughts of God for you and for me, we couldn't count the sum of them. They'd fill up all the beaches in the world. The number of them would be greater than the Sahara Desert or the Gobi Desert or whatever other desert you want to add in there. They're more than the sand. I love that it doesn't just say the sand of the sea. Just the sand. I love going to the beach. This cold weather's got me thinking about the beach. Anybody else out there? Amen. You want to know the thing I don't like about the beach? You can't get away from the sand. I've taken two showers in two different states on my way home. And when I get home, I still have sand in my ears. How is that? You go to the beach and if you're playing real good, you'll find sand in places that you didn't know sand could get can't get away from them and you see just the picture they're more than the sand is you can't get away from the thoughts of God he knows me perfectly yet loves me infinitely he sees everything but is still willing to forgive and to redeem to die for us to adopt us into his family to perfect us as his saints how vast are the thoughts of God for you and me he worships the psalmist does here There's also another response. Another response we find in this passage, and it's found in verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. Don't, don't lose me, okay? Don't lose me this morning. He says in verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not... Hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Ha! How many of you ever prayed a prayer like that? I ain't doing it. I'm afraid to pray that prayer. But what you see is the psalmist turns his, his uh, response to these glorious truths from worship to a longing for justice and redemption. To a longing for justice and redemption. And this shift here in the passage is interesting. 
I don't know if you've ever heard this passage preached, but I've never heard a preacher preach the whole chapter. They always stop there. And then I'll just be honest, it was, it's a little disturbing. But it's entirely consistent with who God is and what the scriptures say about mankind. It's entirely consistent. And now here, follow me. It's not that these people had sinned against David, but on the other hand, they had sinned against a holy God. And David's passion and worship for God, David's awe, David's fear of the Lord, led him to be passionate for God's honor and holy name. He says, O men of blood, verse 19, O men of blood, depart from me. They're, they're murderers. Verse 20, it says, They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Verse 21, They hate you, O Lord. And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Do you see that? They're not David's enemies, they're God's enemies. And because they're God's enemies... David is longing for justice to be poured out upon them. Now, there are three issues in our world today that I believe are directly tied to the sanctity of human life. The first issue is abortion. That's typically where we go with this passage. The second issue is homosexuality. And the third issue is transgenderism. I typed transgenderism into my iPad. And when I did, it tried to capitalize it. And I said, no, you won't. These three issues in our world are directly related to our view or rather, the Scripture's truth regarding the Creator. They're not merely sins against mankind. Now, abortion is the murder of human life, but, but more so, it's a rebellion against God who is Creator of all things. He makes all things well. Fearfully and wonderfully made, intricately woven, knitted together. He makes all things well. He makes no mistakes. He does not create junk. And through abortion, they murder that which Yahweh has fearfully and wonderfully made and intricately woven together. And they, they do it in scoffing at his name. Now, I know that might hit close to home because I know Christians that have had abortions. And let me just say, if that's you, you are welcome here because Jesus is a forgiving Savior. There is redemption for every sin. And I'm so glad that you're here. But here's what I want you to hear, church family. In 2017, alone, there were 862,320 abortions in, in the United States. Now, abortions happen all over the world. Now, leave that slide up there. 
the population in 2020, in 2021, in Greenville was 540,000 people. The population of Spartanburg in 2020, 2021 was 328,000 people. So if you'll add those two numbers together, Greenville and Spartanburg, that's 866, 868,000, excuse me. 868,000. So I want you to understand in a single year in 2017, the equivalent to the populations of Greenville, the entire population of Greenville County and Spartanburg County was wiped out through abortion. And those are just the ones we know about. Do you feel that? That's heavy. It ought to be heavy. And, and let, me, let me tell you, the Constitution never intended to protect the right of human genocide. Can you just weigh out the kingdom impact that that single sin has created? What could, it, let's just say, a, a, a third of 862,000 people trusted Christ. What could that many more Christians fervently working inside the kingdom of God with all the spiritual power of heaven and earth given to them, what could they do? What difference could that make in our world? Now multiply that by almost 50 years of legalized abortion. What is the, it's not just a, it's not just against mankind. It is an affront against God, a rebellion against God himself. But transgenderism and homosexuality, they do the same thing. Because we believe in the sanctity of human life. The word sanctity literally means the holiness of it. They mock God's wisdom. Transgenderism and homosexuality mock the wisdom of God. They, in essence, say to God, my God-given gender does not match the gender of my feelings. Feelings takes place, I mean, if I'm just thinking about this rationally, logically, it takes place over science. And science affirms the truths that we find within Scripture And so it's a mockery of God's scripture. It would say my divinely given, this inspired DNA structure does not align with my fleshly desires. I don't care how I was created. I want to live this way. It reminds me of the book of Judges where every man did what was right in their own eyes. And God gave them exactly what they wanted. This is an affront against God. Complete rebellion. It's, it's saying to God, transgenderism and homosexuality is saying to God, God got it wrong. <laughs> and if God got it wrong, then I'm going to make it right. This is the opposite of lordship. 
Are you with me? It's not just a sin against mankind. It is a sin against God. Abortion, those who are getting abortions will sometimes say, I didn't mean to have that child. It was an, he, he, she was an accident. We look in this scripture and we see that God clearly has no accidents. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. What even formed yet? In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. There are no accidents in God's economy. God's word clearly values the life as God created them. God's word defends the sanctity of human life as God created them. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before I even formed you, I knew you, Jeremiah. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. There is a kingdom impact of those who have been aborted. I just realize that the first person to recognize the Messiah was not a full-grown human being, but rather it was a human being inside a mother's womb. Right? You, you, you remember in that story? In Matthew 19, Jesus affirms that God created them male and female. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. And so Jesus there, many people will say, well, Jesus is silent on transgenderism and homosexuality. In fact, he's not. He's not silent on it. The scriptures aren't silent about it. Jesus spoke and he said, when God created it, he got it right. created a male and female. And what God has joined together, male and female, let not man separate. We often will just point to that for simply divorce, but rather God affirmed as God designed. And so in this passage, Psalm 139, David is confronting the idea that's prevalent in our day that we can love God and, and without hating evil. We can... It's impossible to love God and not hate evil. God shows us that in the Psalms here. There's a quote that I have on the screen for you. It says, a good man hates as God himself does. He hates not the persons of men, but their sins. Not what God made them, but what they made themselves. Do you see that? God doesn't hate what he designed. He hates what they created themselves to be. And God is a God of justice and wrath and judgment while simultaneously being a God of mercy and grace and steadfast love. There is no inconsistency in that. We do not know grace and mercy and love if we do not first know His justice and righteous and judgment. We only understand what love is in light of this. We only understand that I need mercy when I understand that I'm a wretched sinner. I only understand that I need grace when I can't earn what I need. And He is the God of both at all times, perfectly. And He wants you and me to become one who hates sin 
and loves God and people. Is that an easy line to walk? Come on, church family, you've been with me. It's easy to sometimes get fired up about stuff. And when you get fired up about stuff, you get fired up about the people who commit the stuff. And really, you end up taking it out on them. And there is a way, when we're transformed to look like Jesus, to hate sin and love God and His people. And what, what a church could do who hated sin and loved God and loved people, what kind of difference would that church make in His world? We're, we're neither to hate the men on account of the sins they practice, nor love the sins for the sake of the men who practice them. It's understandable that God who knows all is always present and whose creator also must be the judge of all. But longing for justice is not just hating the sin. We've got to work on finding a gospel solution. Now here, listen to me, church family. This is where this gets practical. If we're going to long for justice... We've also got to long for redemption. If we're going to long for God to judge sin, we've got to long that God might provide redemption in the middle of it. What does that mean? We've got to search for gospel solutions for sin. Now, here's where I'm going to step on toes. Being pro-life does not mean that I check that box at the ballot. Being pro-life has got to be more for the church than voting Republican. If we're going to be pro-life, if we're going to long for what the Bible would call justice, there's got to be more. We've got to find a solution, a gospel solution to sin's fallout. We must speak against sin, but we must also work to combat sin with gospel. We must vote life and a scriptural understanding of it, but we've also got to do something about it. Now, here's what I want you to see. Roe versus Wade. I want you to pray that it would not make it to its 50th birthday. Okay? It's, it's, it's with the Supreme Court right now in a court, court case called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, a Mississippi abortion case that asks... Are all pre-viability pro prohibitions on elective abortions unconstitutional? Or in other words, can Mississippi ban nearly all abortions after the unborn child has reached 15 weeks of gestation? They're asking that right now. And there's no real middle ground. So they've either got to say abortion was wrong and we got it wrong in 1973, or it's right and we're holding the line. Pray that it doesn't make it to 50 years. There is... Uh, a bill before the South Carolina legislature right now called the H4046 bill. And it states in its opening line, this is the goal of the bill, that the deliberate determination of it, or the deliberate termination of an unborn child by any means or at any stage of development is murder. To create criminal penalties, to declare certain abortion-related United States Supreme Court decisions void and unenforceable in the state of South Carolina. This is before our legislature right now. Pray. Listen, but let's not be naive. If abortion is banned in, in our country, that does not mean that when women and men will stop seeking to destroy the, the life within. 
So what's the church going to do? You want to know why we find ourselves where we are? Because the church throughout history has given up their God-given responsibility to care for orphans and widows. If, if Roe versus Wade is, is overturned, then we've got to get ready. What does that mean? Fostering. Right? I'm old. Abraham was too. He raised a baby. Fostering. Adoption. You don't have to adopt a baby. Teenagers need adopting. I can't adopt a teenager because I gotta I gotta save up for their college. Some of you have already done that. You can afford to put them through college. Adoption must be near and dear to our hearts. Fostering. Who is willing to step up if a, if a mother says, I don't want to abort my child, but I don't know how I can do it, what's the church going to do? Would be, we be willing to put our money where our mouth is or our vote is? To step in and say, I don't know how we'll do it, but if you put your trust in us, we'll take care of you. We'll make sure that you don't lack a single thing that's needed. Till you're on your feet. There's an organization right in downtown Seneca called Foothills Care Center, formerly the Crisis Pregnancy Center of Seneca, and they're doing a work to combat abor abortion. See, listen... People need redemption. I want you to understand Jesus is going to come back one day and make all things new. But until then, he's expecting the church by the power of the Holy Spirit to step in and provide gospel solutions to sin problems until Jesus makes all things new. We are a plan of redemption. And it's not just our goal to preach the gospel. We need to preach the gospel. These people need Jesus. The solution to transgenderism or homosexuality or abortion is not a bill, but the gospel message. That Jesus Christ died to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. That's the solution. If you get Jesus in people's hearts, you won't have to worry about these things. Church we got to step up. But in the meanwhile, we're looking at how do we bless our communities and how do we help people see Jesus? How do we live out the gospel in our culture so that people want the gospel that we're preaching? Are you with me? It's bigger. And that's part of David's worship. You've never worshipped like that, have you? Me neither. But David longs for the day where God's name would be exalted. Hallowed be thy name. I want, I want you to understand, don't demonize people that have made bad decisions. 
The only difference between you and me and, and somebody who's made a bad decision that we're talking about today is that Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. Haven't you made bad decisions? Well, yeah, Ryan, my sins weren't as bad. Can't find that verse in Scripture. And if we think that way about our sins, I think our pride's blinded us. The only difference between me and them is the grace of God that's been poured out to me through Jesus. And now by His grace, I see different. There, there's another organization. we got Foothills Care Center. We, we've got three people in our church who are sitting on the board of it. Brenda Dawkins, Nancy Ebling, and myself. We are on the board of directors at the Foothills Care Center. And we believe in its mission. And if you want to know how to get plugged in, ask those two ladies back there. They would love to tell you how to get plugged into what it's doing on a regular basis. Fostering Faithfully is a great organization uh, led by a lady named Abby Crooks here in, our, in Oconee County. And they are, they are doing good work to take care of orphans in the name of Jesus. We need to be preaching the gospel. He doesn't end there. I want to be real fast. Verse 23, search me, O God. See how he ends? He doesn't end with them. He ends with him. G.K. Chesterton, who was a friend of C.S. Lewis, a contemporary of his, saw in a newspaper the poll or the, the question that was asked, what's wrong with the world today? And G.K. Chesterton wrote in a two-word answer, I am. And so David does the same thing. He, he turns inward at the end. He says, search me, O God. Search me. Know my heart. Test me and, and, and know my, or try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is lordship. This is what lordship looks like for you and me, where we turn inward and we say, search me, test me, know me, see if there's any grievous way in me, reveal it to me so that you would lead me in the, the everlasting way, the ancient way, the way of Jesus. It's an invitation for God to search my heart, to reveal, to confront, because I know there's a better way. I know that there's something more beautiful and something more satisfying. And so that's what I'm asking for you to do today is to turn your sights inward and say, okay, God, with all that we've heard, search me. Know me, test me, and lead me. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. Your word is good and it's true. Your word is heavy. And Father, would you search us, know us, test us and try us, reveal to us any grievous way in us, any way that's not pleasing in your sight, and would you then help us by your grace to repent of it, to trust once again in the precious blood of Jesus, and then lead us 
in the everlasting way. Jesus said, I am the way. Help us, Lord. We pray that Roe versus Wade would be overturned in our days. We pray that we thank you that the heartbeat bill has gone through in the state of South Carolina. We pray for this new bill that's going to say no abortion ever. We pray that that would be successful and your favor would be upon it. But if it is or if it's not, our hope is not in a bill, but our hope is in Jesus. And so, Lord, if it's not, if it doesn't go through, and we believe that it can, we believe that you want it to, but if it doesn't, oh Lord, raise your church to step into the nasty fray, the mess of this world, the fallout of sin, and be light and salt. In Jesus' name, amen.